0: I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org.
1: Welcome, I'm, uh, I'm hoping the people out in the lobby can hear me too. Um, pretty amazing to have uh, this kind of turnout for archival footage, I'm excited by that. Um, never knew there was quite this many archivist geeks out there. Uh, we got a lot in the front row, it turns out. Um, the next talk is Saul Griffith, and um, his talk is called Climate Change Recalculated. Uh, Saul has some of the most amazing numbers on uh, our coming climate challenge. Uh, in the next century that I've ever seen, and I've just been looking at them in the early chapters of Stuart's book. Um, and I am Alexander Rose, the director of Long Now Foundation, by the way, who's normally here as Stuart. Uh, Stuart is on book deadline. He's going to be sifting questions instead of giving them today. Back in 1998, we, as Long Now Foundation, did our very first conference and it was called Time and Bits, Managing Digital Continuity. And in, in 1998, that was a pretty novel concept that uh, people were really uh, archiving digital stuff. And Brewster Kale, who's actually here in the audience at, from the Internet Archive, was, was in attendance and one of the few people doing really good work at the time. And... We realized a couple things there. Two main ideas came out of that. One of them was uh, spawned also by Brewster, and that was to start our Rosetta project with a a very slow form of archiving that's done with etching into micro micro etching into metal that could last for thousands of years. But the other one is one that's that's now been coined by Kevin Kelly as movage, and that's the idea of accessibility and movability in digital data. And it's this accessibility thing that was actually very different. That than all the other archivists were doing in the world. Um, generally archivists were hoarders historically, they were not givers. And we started realizing in a that this was the right way with digital materials and we started allying ourselves with people like Mike Keller at the, uh, at the Stanford Library, Brewster Kale at the Internet Archive, and we eventually met Rick Prelinger through Brewster who was archiving digitally some of the most difficult things to archive there was digitally, and that's film. And tonight he's going to show you some of that amazingness. Thank you.)
2: Well, thank you so much for coming, and thank you, especially intrepid people outside. Um, can I have a little bit <laughs> a little bit less light. Is that at all possible? Tiny bit less light? I guess I can deal. So, um, so what to think about as we look at Lost Landscapes tonight. Here's just a few quick thoughts. In 1982, I got a job doing research on a documentary feature. And Along the way, I discovered that the U.S. was the media-richest nation in the world. We throw out more media than most countries ever produce. I got interested in films that had evidentiary value, and I started to collect them. These were educational films made to train, to educate often, to miseducate. Industrial films filled with imagery of people working and the history of technology, and advertising films that were about uh, promoting products, causes, particular ways of thinking. Over the next 20 years, I collected films and raw footage. I started a stock footage business to fund these, uh, the pace of acquisitions, which grew to about 150,000 cans, mostly stored in a cool room in the meat market in Manhattan. It's very, very hard to take good care of heavy, temperamental, physical objects. And I started to get worried about the future of the collection. Both Danny Hillis and Howard Besser suggested I meet up with Brewster Kale. In the first 30 seconds, Brewster said, Wow, we were just talking at Thursday night dinner, wondering where we could find a film archive to put online for free. Want to put your archives online for free? <laughs> this was 1999. And I just moved out here from New York, and I thought information wanted to be expensive, and so I stuttered my way through that conversation. But soon I started to think this might be worth trying, and we began to build a free online moving image archive, which now has over 2,000 2000 films and is still growing. You can download, project, reuse, re-edit, and resell the online movies, and we've been able to tug this rather odd body of media into the mainstream. Soon afterwards, our film collection was acquired by the Library of Congress. And then in 2004, Megan and I opened our library, and we filled the shelves with books, periodicals, print ephemera, zines, and maps. It's open to the public. Many of you have been. Many of you have shelved thank you. It's appropriation friendly. You can come and scan material to use in your own work. If you haven't visited, we'd love to see you. All the great things that can happen when you join the gift economy began to happen for us. And now I guess we're hoping we can gift our way through the depression. (laughs) Above all, I got interested in home movies. So home movies are the great exception to what we usually think of as film. They typically show scenes of everyday life. They're made by unknown authors. And above all, they're personal expression. They're not commercial or corporate expression. Over time, there were billions and billions of feet of home movies. One million feet of 16 millimeter equals something less than 700 hours if it's shot silent, less than 500 hours if it's shot sound. 700 hours is probably a few days of lab output back in the day but each reel is unique even if many of them show similar ceremonies and similar rituals most reels were never duplicated and only one original exists so these are more than evidence these are also unique artifacts some of them have been handed down but many have not and the world is filled with other people's home movies many of which contain fascinating evidence enigmatic imagery things you can't see elsewhere and many of which can be vehicles for complex historical insights. Uh, Kodachrome for example. A Kodachrome film is a relatively stable record of people, places and activities at a given time and it's typically in beautiful color. Tonight you'll see video transfers from Kodachrome films from 1939, 40, 41 that look as if they could have been shot yesterday except for the noise that the video introduces. The density of detail and the dramatic presence of the material Trump's still photos, beat-up film prints, and many uh, digital videos. But what I'm going to be showing tonight isn't just home movies. It's also outs, outtakes from industrial and sponsored films and bits and pieces of newsreel footage. These are mostly ephemeral records. They were not made for posterity. Industrial and sponsored films were typically made for specific reasons at specific times. And home movies were, of course, made to be shown within individual families. So most survive by accident. Um, Moving images don't just document histories. In fact, they make histories accessible. But first, they themselves have to be accessible. And aside from what studios distribute and pirates seed, there's relatively little public access to archival moving images, aside from a few courageous uh, DVD projects like National Film Preservation Foundation. But the reasons are copyright worries and a culture of, of archival enclosure. This is a big, big problem. Today we can document daily life with almost infinite granularity. In fact, we're approaching the Borgesian, the one-to-one correspondence between the world and the map. But documentation of the past is of a different class. It's finite. It's often precious. We wish we had more. I've often... I've often played out mental scenarios that involve going back in time with a high-res camera and plenty of batteries, and I'm sure many of you have too. Uh, Arguably, we have an abundant present and a parsimonious past. But it only takes a few years before an abundance of documentation decays into a mess of records that are hard to parse and hard to search. It's going to be more expensive to select than it is to collect this is certainly my life story. We can, add, we can add coherence by curating and contextualizing records if anyone can find the time. And we'll do some of that in about five minutes. Most archival functions are likely to be uh, fulfilled by machines, except for working with historical material, which I think is going to continue to be an artisanal activity. But back to the first question. So what's the use of all this? Getting together on a Friday night to watch old clips and to talk back to the screen seems fairly innocuous. It's unlikely to matter very much in the long term. And how important, how valuable can old uh, archival clips really be? Well... There's many, many interesting things you could do with archival footage, but people don't do very much with it except to sell stock shots. Stock shots are really expensive. Prices have no relation to actual costs. In my opinion, in fact, most archives are tremendously overvalued. Only a small minority of images, very specific memes, mesh well with a commercial media matrix, and just a few percent of archival holdings ever generate any income. I see image archives actually fitting in another way. I think we've started building a digital model of the universe as we know it. It's a model that aggregates newly acquired imagery, which comes in very quickly, with archival images, which come in more slowly because they're analog and because there's, you know, latency built into the way that archives work. We've seen this begin to happen with maps and with still pictures. And it'll be this uh, that gives archives a chance to come into their own, not more cable TV channels or more video on demand. So we're starting to see a lot more image geotagging. Geotagging means attaching spatial coordinates to an image. So not just where it was shot, but what it sees. You might have tags like location, altitude, angle of viewing, range. And knitting tags and images together is one tiny incremental step towards the creation of what you could call a four-dimensional model of the world that shows the development of place over time. There's lots of obvious uses for a model like this. Many of you have probably thought about it. History could emerge from its hiding places in the landscape, and history could become visible infrastructure. What isn't so obvious is how the existence of a 4D model will affect both the raw data and the landscapes that it represents. It might be more than just another excursion into the symbolic domain. So a model of the world past, present, and, and And future will be valuable. Even throwaway images will gain value as they become part of a system that has predictive power. In fact, any image that can help a human or a machine to extrapolate the future will be invested with new importance. Archival images such as aerial photos already assist in predicting the modes and the directions and the uh, velocity of human build out and infrastructure. But there's going to be consequence in smaller details as well. So here are our living room windows, as they showed up in Google Street View earlier this year. What's that in the left-hand window? It's a film reel on the arm of a projector. It's almost revealing enough to be planned, but it wasn't. And here's the refreshed view as of yesterday. Note the difference from the first to the second. The projector's gone. My own case is unimportant because I don't think that really means very much. But anyone watching the sum of small changes on my block this way and through other models would be able to derive a lot of actionable information, especially if these changes were crunched along with all the other changes seen in the city. How the Richmond district grew out starting in the 20s may help to predict how it's going to develop in the 2020s. I think there's gonna be great contention over these, these models in the same way that Barbara Streisand fought the aerial photographers who were shooting the entire California coast and wanted to shoot her property too from the air. Who will own the 3D models? Do they constitute fair use of copyrighted structures? You know, you can copyright buildings now. If I control representations of my own space in the present, does that mean that I control it in the past or in the future? Neighborhoods, towns, entire countries may pull out of 3D modeling as they've tried to pull out of street view. They may not want to be used for marketing. They may not want police to know what they're place looks like. And I'm going to be interested to see what happens to archival images when they're all geotagged and embedded into a 4D model. Um, as As with media like online books, searchable video, and commercial databases, the social price of the added value might be increased in closure. So ironically, we may have to fight to free images just because we finally figured out ways to use them. So, the past is not passé, it's prologue. What seems completely antiquated may, in fact, be predictive. So maybe the idea of lost landscapes is a misnomer. We're not just getting together to watch old footage. We're a focus group on what the future of San Francisco could be. If we squint hard, we might see the kernel of the future in the minute details of the past. So, we are not here for an art film screening. Please shout out when you recognize something. Talk back to the screen. This is interactive cinema. And now I'm going to present to you um, Lost Landscape 3. Mike on Rick. Yeah, this is uh, John Summers' home movies. He's uh, flying into San Francisco Airport. (laughs) South San Francisco, maybe. Same place as now. DC3.
3: 1941
2: August. bar. This is 1938. We're messing with time here. 1962. Interstate 280 unfinished, (laughs) still unfinished, 1962 thereabouts. Yeah, it might have been on a Sunday, let's give them a, uh, a fair chance.
0: Transportation to San Francisco was by ferry, a convivial mode of travel that, particularly in the evening, had elements of fantasy, and generated a sense of adventure that even the meek could enjoy. Many a commuter dreamed secret dreams when the blown spray wet his cheek and his soul soared to the undulation of these crammed to the Bay Area.
2: This is all early 30s, it's put together from a bunch of different films. Let's bring Con Hill cleared for the, the bridge approach. <laughs> those of you who like scary construction films, you might want to download Bridging San Francisco Bay from the Internet Archive. It's a hair-raising film about building the bridge. A lot more of this. traffic. This is about 1938. those dudes from Emeryville. (laughs) so much film of the Bay Bridge. This was one of the hardest parts of putting this together. There's far too much footage of the Bay Bridge. Mm -hmm.
0: was built with a second level to accommodate the most modern interurban trains in operation anywhere controlled at each end of the bridge by a tower that houses the switches, relays, and circuits that make up the nerve centers of one of the most efficient train control systems in existence, with safety devices that are the product of the most modern engineering genius. Inside the cab, the motorman controls the speed of the train in response to the panel, which indicates 35 miles an hour at this point. This indicator is part of an elaborate safety system worked by means of electrical impulses carried through the rail. If the motorman were to disregard the speed indicated on the panel, control of the train would be automatically (coughs) taken away from him. There has never been a train collision on the bridge since they began to use it in 1939.
2: This is 1945, more or
0: less. The bell indicates a change of speed. Watch closely, and you'll see the indicator drop to 25 miles an hour. If he gets too close to the preceding train, he is automatically stopped. And that's nice to know in the fog, which sometimes creeps in on the San Francisco side. Approaching the terminal, where the air is fragrant with a smell of spice and roasted coffee, the speed drops from 17 to 11 miles an hour.
2: Bay Terminal, 1941. It's the Geary Street, uh, the B car to Geary, I believe. So we're heading off market into the south of market area on the back of a fire truck. This is from a 3D movie, but unfortunately we only have one eye of it. This is sometime around mid-50s, beat cop in South of Market. And this is um, a, a small selection from a lot of footage that was shot by the Salvation Army in about 1954, and it's about their work with um, you know what they used to call bums in the South of Market District. And this is footage of the Fourth and Howard area, which is now, of course, redeveloped and is uh, is, is Moscone, where you know people meet to talk about Linux now. But in those days, um, <laughs> it was a place where. Uh, Displaced workers, itinerant workers, alcoholics, and confused people would hang out, and the city for years tried to get rid of it and finally did. But this is kind of extremely unusual footage of just street life uh, at that point in time. It's a Greek business. If you look in the phone books from that period, there are actually a lot of, um, of uh, businesses identified with, uh, with, with the Greek nationality. It's a pastry, bakery. Really? Anti recruitment. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. So these people are marching off for uh, presumably a meal and a service at, at Salvation Army. This is Howard around 4th, I think. Does it say? Yeah. sometime around 38. Okay, so this is unedited raw footage of a picket line from the uh, Longshore strike of 1934, which became the general strike. This is after July 1934, bloody Thursday, July 5, when two workers were murdered. Um, and, uh, and there's some references to all this, but this is kind of uh, this is unusual material. I don't know where it comes from. Yes. Some of these films are on the, uh, for up on the Internet Archive for free download. This is, I believe. I uh, not yet. And this is the Embarcadero. Uh, around the same time, I think, no, a few years later. And this must be Sunday because it's it's uh, we're early in the morning, but this is uh, around 19. 39 1940. Is it? Great. <laughs> we got to talk. So this is a North Beach. It looks city like lights. city lights. This is posed. This was for the official San Francisco Convention of Visitors Bureau film, but it's an outtake, as you can see.
3: <laughs>
2: and so is this. And we're on top of Telegraph Hill sometime in the, uh, around then, late 50s, I think, 56, 57-ish. So this is the, um, the Barbary Coast, you know, what is now, we would call Jackson Square, and this is about 1914, I think, and these are sailors on the town looking for a good time, <laughs> and there's a lot of uh, really, really interesting information that you can get by looking at the signs and looking at the, at the street.
3: Pacific
1: at Columbus.
2: That's Pacific
1: Avenue between uh, uh, Montgomery and uh, Kearney. So different.
2: And there's also film being shown in there as well. And now we're in 1932, and this is the same area, but it's all—it's—it's uh, it's derelict. and sign on relief bonds. And this is a pan around Portsmouth Square, um, which, of course, now is a park and a garage. And this is the old Hall of Justice coming up, which lasted until when? 56, 57-ish, am I right? Portsmouth Square, of course, was where the the city was founded. That's where the, the first flag was raised. This is 1939. Notice the sign, the banners welcoming people to the World's Fair. I think that is at the Ping Wen Project. <laughs> So where are we? Do people know? Fillmore Hill Hill on the Fillmore Street cable car. (laughs) (laughs) This is sometime around 1938 as well. It's when a lot of people started shooting color film. So this is raw footage. Um, I've just kind of jammed it together, shot about sixty two ish I think and it's it's just San Francisco scene from a cable car, but it's kind of beautiful it's vertigo like in a way sixty four thank you sixty four automobile you mean so This is edited like like bullet. <laughs> <laughs> this is what you look for when you're looking at home movies. You know, the endless flower beds and fountains that don't change very much. Drive me a little crazy, but this is a lot more exciting. Have kind of a dynamic view of the landscape. A wonderful project for next year geotag this This is one of the north of market parks, but I don't know which one. Lafayette or... 1938-ish, again. Fourth Street. 1941. This is our our man in the plane again. (laughs) Not, Not pedestrian friendly. So, many of you have seen this film. This is a trip down Market Street, uh, considered to be 1905, Um, but nobody's ever seen it, I think, with this quality. We have original uh, material on it, and this was copied film to film, and it doesn't jump up and down anymore. It's registered, and the level of detail struck me so much that I wanted to show it. Um, It's really quite amazing. You can do amazing things if you spend the money. In this case, actually, we did not, but um, uh, this was paid for by Hewlett-Packard in a very complicated arrangement. But when you do film-to-film, 35 millimeter to 35, you can just get astonishing. And they said that this was what they called a dirty dupe, so they even felt they could do better if they had more time. It's said that the, the cameraman hired his friends to, to do just this um, to, make, to give the film a little more visual interest, give it that edge. See, this is life before the nanny society that regulates every aspect of behavior. LAUGHTER Don't anybody give away the ending. It's about 1941 again, from a different, uh, different shooter. I like the atmosphere here. There. Is that what it is? The, the streetcar strike? Yeah, streetcar strike. Looks like Valencia on Saturday night. <laughs> Yeah, there's a Geary streetcar coming in.:
3: Car 1040 is still around.
2: So, it's 1906, just after the quake, or after the fire, as some people like to call it. And this is a bunch of footage. We have 35 millimeter on it, and it's quite uh, dramatic, just because the, the quality, it, it actually even gets better. But this is around the corner of Fillmore and Eddy. Um, and it's, some people are lined up for relief. Other people are just trying to put things together. I don't have a specific date when this was shot. Um, but that storage company, uh, which you're mm-hmm. going to see shortly in other corners at Eddie and Fillmore. So, I'm sure somebody knows where this is. I don't. This is a, a relief line. I think it's close to City Hall, isn't it? There's a lot of uh, footage shot by the Edison Company in post-quake San Francisco. I personally don't know if this is, this is Edison footage. I haven't done that research yet. It comes from um, a man named Frank Vale who died a few years ago at 101, I believe, who had um, uh, he had actually been alive then but a little too young to shoot. He did shoot the, the Panama Pacific in 1915 that he had a barrel in his basement with some nitrate film and this was part of it.
3: How do something like
2: that? Where it comes from? Well, the Edison material is quite well known. In fact, some of it's on the Library of Congress American Memory site, although the quality does not look so great. And you can compare. Um, you know, a lot of the earthquake's footage has surfaced. It's been seen places. So I just haven't done that, that hard work yet. I was just struck by this because of the the quality and the amount of, the level of the detail.
3: We know where this
2: is?: yeah. It would seem that it was the, the boundary of where explosives were used, you know, to, uh, to build a fire break. That would be one thought.
3: Oh, that's City hall, oh, City hall. City hall. Oh,
2: right. And this is a uh, yeah
3: That's the people statues now at Dolores and Market. No, no, it's Oh, right, right.
4: 1917, the corner of 3rd and Market Streets. Across the street, a giant American flag is unfurled, a signal that the United States has declared war on Germany. In the street, in their homes, the people of San Francisco celebrate. Some of them cheer, some shout, others curse or weep. But most of it's cheering, for America is glad to be in the fight. It knows little of what awaits the Yankee Doughboys over there. San Francisco's manpower joins the struggle. Young Americans are drafted or volunteer, and the first contingents of citizen soldiers march down Market Street, the road to the Western Front. Company after company, block after block, they march. San Francisco's offering to the First
2: World War. This sound was put on in
4: 1938. The public buildings, theaters, the stores are decorated for the men of the army. The city sends them off with good wishes. With some tears but mostly with smiles they're the soldiers of feet of going to make the world safe for democracy along the embarcadero the young men of san francisco in long khaki clad ranks no experienced soldiers these are boys from the offices the factories the universities the streets from Hill and south of market going off more to a great game than to bloody war this then is San Francisco, 1917. Now San Francisco, 1918, 21 years ago this week, the armistice is signed, the war is over, into Market Street for the men and women of the city to celebrate. Up and down the street they parade, delirious with joy, for some of them have come to know the meaning of war. Grotesque and ugly in their influenza masks, the people of San Francisco celebrate. This was during the flu epidemic. Kaiser Wilhelm is Sweet William now. Who is afraid of the Hans? Some of them signs of hate, most of them just outpourings of a great joy. For this day, November 11th, 1918, marks the end of an era of hate and bloodshed and violence. It's the beginning of peace and goodwill on earth. And those who have died have not died in vain. They've died to make the world safe for democracy. They've swept to victory in the war to end war. And so San Francisco celebrates in 1918 because the war is over, and there'll never be another.
2: So this is after VJ Day in August 1945, when there was kind of a massive riot on Market Street, as well as a lot of other places. I don't know the source of this footage. It's in part news footage and in part amateur film, and it's quite disorganized, but it gives a sense of the flavor of the time of the day. There's actually, I think, three days of, of, of uh, misbehavior, worse than misbehavior, assaults, rapes, knifings. Chrissy Field. So this is from the Ransehoff family home movies. You, you remember in Vertigo, he dresses her up at Ransehoff's, um and uh, they shot a bunch of things, including the store trip to the Golden Gate International Exposition. It's early Sunday morning. That's why the buses have the street to themselves. Essex Street on-ramp, and here's, there's the National Cash Register pavilion in the middle. <laughs> the, the numbers show the daily attendance at the fair. They had that in New York as well. New Bridge in there. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Gateway.
4: The gateway.
2: Yeah. Be patient. art building, I just had to show that. And, of course, this building is still there. This was the uh, Pan American airway terminal for the Clipper service.
3: service between the United States and China. Right there.
2: This is again August 1941.
3: It's called Clipper Cove today because of the Pan Am Clippers, not because of Clipper ships.
2: So, yeah, this is uh, the construction and opening of the Twin Peaks Tunnel in around 1917. This is not in order. You'll see that it jumps around, but it's such a it – rolls a little bit, too. It's Mayor Rolf. It's such a, a dramatic uh, uh, film. I've just left it in the order that I have it. Market and Castro, I think. This may be the first car through. Okay.
3: To put in Westwood Park. Be Avenue. It's
2: here for the Western Neighborhoods Project. Hill Station
3: yeah. Eureka Street Station
2: <laughs> hard hats were not in use Gunpowder Black powder <laughs> For all you backyard gardeners <laughs> So, Sunset District somewhere. Cheers. Naples and Geneva, I think. Looks like Stern Grove in the background. Maybe.
3: Now the the
2: the box that this roll of film was in it was addressed to somebody named Zelinsky, which sounds like a family that. Some of us would know the Musée Mécanique, so I'm curious if that's them. Yeah, I just got it. Diamond Heights. When did the pier come down? Does anybody know? Leyland. For those of you who don't know Great Highway, what, Balboa to Geary, thereabouts? Uh, Balboa, to Balboa to Fulton, excuse me.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Sutro Baths. This is late. I think they were abandoned by then. This is, you know, early 60s. that. Everybody here. wave. <laughs> and this is just odd footage from the early 60s of, um, of uh, art and repertory theaters in San Francisco. Santo Cedar on Larkin. These particular clips are outtakes from the official San Francisco Convention and Visitors Bureau film. And they just shot a lot of stuff about... This is the bridge, I think, isn't it? And this is probably what was then the Toho. This is now... Isn't this the Orpheum now, Mike? Or the Warpheum? No, the Orpheum. Uh-huh. Right, of course This is a premiere What is this, about 65, 66? 62 Boy, I'm no film buff I'm really not what, the Archeo Golden Gate, I think? (laughs) This is more from that 3D film. It's really a film about 3D, but we don't have very much of it. So now to questions. Can I make another announcement, too? Yep. For those of you who have friends who couldn't make it or want to see this again, we're going to do this plus some other stuff at Counterpulse at 9th Admission on February 11th. So come back for more and tell your friends who couldn't make it. I just have a
1: couple of questions so that we can head over to the party. Um, I know that it was difficult to collect them in the dark, so... Um I guess uh, the, the first question that comes to my mind, and feel free to pass them forward if you do have any, um, is where do you find your found footage?
2: Um, in the old days, I used to have to go after it, and I would talk to producers who'd made stuff and go to schools and universities that had switched from film to video. But in recent years, really in the last 10, 15 years, people have, people have come to us, and I you know, I also have to admit I've gone back to evil eBay. There's some amazing things here from, from eBay as well, although they tend to be overpriced. I don't want, It's the worst thing that's happened because people split up collections and sell them piecemeal, and a lot of integrity is lost. But um, you know, you do it; you have to. Um, and
1: that's a, another interesting question. The, what we've always been told at Long Now is there's basically there is no economic case for archives. Um, And some of the things that have started to flip that has been um, now with DVDs, you get the cutting room floor now, you know, Universal is now and other companies are now realizing that that, those outtakes are somewhat valuable to them as value added information. But I'm even more interested as to how you made the transition from being a, a amateur archivist to a professional archivist. How did that flip?
2: In the 80s, I just started collecting so much and ran up these huge credit card bills you know, renting trucks and things like that and, and paying rent on my space in New York. And I, somebody explained to me that I could sell stock footage, they explained to me what the public domain was. And it was a natural. It was a means to an end. And, and so I just kind of monetized it. I mean, it was never – we've always been kind of a functional nonprofit but mm-hmm. in, in – in recent years, there's more interest. I mean, interestingly enough, after we put stuff online for free, we began to make a lot more money. This is, this is uh, Scott's honor. It's uh, very interesting. <laughs> um, and
1: so the people that come to you for this footage, what's, what's the kind of surprising uses that – or the, the mundane use that they usually come to you for, and what are the more surprising usage
2: that you see? Yeah, you know, the mundane use is just use in, in production. This is what funds us. It keeps us alive. It pays for film-to-tape transfer. It pays the rent. It keeps the library open. Um, Interesting uses. You know, I... I think we've only begun to scratch the surface of what could be done with this material. I'm fascinated with using it for modeling, you know, and really trying to build a, a, a world, a historical world with some dimensionality to it that's not, um, you know, kind of faked with 3D animation or with CGI. I mean, that can be good. But I'm very interested in how this fits into kind of a coherent assembly over time. And I think, you know, gaming people have just scratched the surface. It turns out a lot of times it's easier to make something new than it is to figure out how to use old material. But the the detail and the authenticity of this stuff really, really excites me. Everybody says, you know, people people use it in education. And to some extent they do. The online archives is used Big time in education, but typically a film is shown to a class. you know I think it 's getting people to work with raw material and thinking about all of this as as, uh, as the basis for new works rather than completed works in and of themselves that 's I think what gets exciting. but I think in you know ten years uh, there'll be a lot you know the, the paradigms for how this can be used will be blasted wide open and
1: brewster what 's the access levels on this? footage at the archive? Millions of, downloads. Millions of
2: downloads. I mean, we think, you know, like last year was like 20 million downloads and this stuff is pretty obscure. Um, I noticed, uh, I happened to see something online in a Windows Vista magazine that said we've had one and a quarter billion downloads of our footage, but I think that was like Vista, it was hype, you know. <laughs> But it's in the tens of millions. And you can tell because there's just a load of derivative works that are made from this stuff, you know, where people who would never be able to pay, you know, are taking the material and doing stuff with it. A lot of, you know, students, independent community makers, homeschoolers love the old educational films, you know, conservative homeschoolers, because they <laughs> because they depict a world that, you know, that they look back a little, you know. But... Not that all homeschooling is conservative, but there's all sorts of uses that we had never anticipated.
1: And uh, I guess this, is, this is my last question. Now, I do have to hold everyone in here until I get the high sign that the lobby's clear. So nobody run away. Um, we'll try and entertain you. Um, the, the thing that struck me most in this room and seeing this uh, this event is that you have all these people in this room that can help you metadata this content. Have you Have you used this kind of Crowd-crowdsourced in the the true crowd sense um, to capture metadata. I mean, um, there's, there's, for there's the this one person in this one corner knew more about San Francisco than I've ever seen. Yeah, I'm meta- glad <laughs> I know who he is. Um, <laughs> Western Neighborhoods given.
2: Project. Yeah. Out outsidelands dot Org. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, so the films that we've put up online, there's room for user annotation, and a lot of that annotation is incredibly revealing, and it's much more knowledgeable. I mean, they point out my mistakes, you know, and um, there's, I've copied a lot of those shot lists and a lot of that explanation from my own database. I think we, we need to make that better. I think they're working on that at the archive right now. Does anybody have any other questions while we're waiting for the lobby to clear up Over there. Jeff Alexander. Um, Jeff Alexander is an amazing man. He's a connoisseur of what he calls "academic film," which Coming are away. essentially <laughs> I was fleeing the line of where yeah, I yeah. really should be. And um, he's interested in films that were made as works of art. And he's a super smart guy and a connoisseur and a friend. And um, we've done a bunch of things together. And I wish he still did shows in San Jose because he he actually got people into a basement every week or two to watch educational films. And he... um, and he had large audiences, and he did these extremely perceptive program notes. But he's a, you know, a, a comrade, I would say. There's a lot of, you know, that's where a lot of the action is in the archival world is, is uh, unofficial, independent community practices. There's a lot of innovation coming out of that. The Home Movie Day people are very, very good examples. Um, Home Movie Day, 30 or 40 places around the world. You should go next October. Um, But, you know, I would – a lot of times innovation comes from the periphery, and that's what's happening in the the world of archives, I think.
1: As I understand it, the lobby is now clear. We're going to keep doing questions until uh, they taper off. Right here, Matt. Um, I'm intrigued by your 4D model um, approach. Now, that takes more than just simply making it online digital, but it takes uh, kind of
3: a semantic markup. Yes.
1: how to geotag the assets?
2: Um, I haven't done it. I've read a little bit about different kinds of research projects online. Um, yeah. uh, there are people in this room who would know a lot more of that about that in terms of other things. You know, David Rumsey in terms of uh, maps and cartographic files. Um, a lot of people have done it on Flickr. There's a lot of geotagged material on Flickr, and I guess in the Google photo service as well. But I'm, you know, I, I'm going to be the content person when it comes to to making these partnerships happen. what what trends are driving paid content? So we give away footage for free online and then we're represented by Getty Images. You know, there's a duopoly in the stock footage industry. There's Corbis, which is owned by Bill Gates, and there's Getty Images, which was a, um, a, uh, a public company and has now been taken private. It was bought by a private equity firm run by Warren Hellman here in San Francisco. And um, they charge a lot for material. Uh, and it's... It's too expensive for some independent documentary makers. We sell a lot to commercials, to feature films, to um, cable documentaries, to corporate in-house. I don't even know. You know, um, We seem to make more money now internationally than we do domestically, but that's because Getty has offices all over the world. I mean, when it comes to selling stock footage, I am a hyper-capitalist, you know, because I've got got to keep this operation going. But at the same time, um, we give it away, and that seems to work quite well. That really got a lot more people to know who we were and what we had. And, you know, the footage has been online so long now that somebody who – cut something with it as a student is now in a position to go buy it as a professional media producer and I find that kind of interesting you know that a a web service can become old green shirt go ahead yep
1: Why not the Golden Gate Bridge? Yeah, I got tired
2: (laughs) of bridges. I mean, I started with the Bay Bridge. And yes, there's amazing Golden Gate Bridge footage, but most of it is just people driving around uh, back and forth on the bridge. And some of it is chillingly beautiful because it's very empty. You know, the Golden Gate Bridge, I think, was 65 cents when it opened up in 1936, which is a lot of money. Actually, it's about $6 now, so it's, it's kind of the same that it was now. But um, it was expensive then, and there was relatively little traffic. It was built to anticipate the needs of future traffic and to open up the Redwood Empire, so to speak. Um, but I just, you know, there are a lot of things I left out. Please come back next year. I'll try to make it as different as I can. Uh, yes, there is. We have a little bit. The, the bridge district has a lot more. We just have a few minutes. And there's a documentary you can go buy at the little um, at the gift shop at the the South Tower.
1: What is the mythical holy grail of footage? The Moby Dick of footage?
2: My house, you know, <laughs> in the 30s or 40s um, you know, I have not actually thought thought much about that because there's been so many discoveries like this year we found the color material of the golden gate international exposition and it was so beautiful that i haven't had time to to kind of want more um i'd like to find you know outside san francisco there's a million things i'd like to find um but yeah well thank you this is uh next year uh, We need to thank Long Now for getting the big room. I mean, that makes such oh, a we, difference. We clearly should have gotten a bigger one. <laughs> right behind? Yep. I really appreciated seeing that footage of the pier. I wish it was still there.
1: And other sense Um have you seen anything about Clarkown? The
3: women's
2: bicycling club? Carville? The Larry Bowman? No. I'd love Carville. to. Carville? Yeah. No footage of Carville? None none that we know of, but you never know what you'll find. Yep. Um, Yes, love to talk to you about that. The question question was, was, if
1: if somebody has a giant box of old films, is Rick interested? (laughs) Do they have Carville? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, last question, anyone? Anyone? Right
2: here. Oh, you know, interestingly enough, in the United States... We have a much, although we have a lot of problems with copyright law being behind the times, we have a great many moving images in the public domain. So almost all industrial and advertising films are public domain, most educational films are. The question about home movies is very interesting and I'm gonna level with you. Um, home movies are unpublished works and most unpublished works are under copyright, just statutorily. Um, But nobody seems to care. They're orphan works for the most part. And um, it's one of these things that although there's potentially a legal issue... Nobody has ever done anything about it. And I think there's a precedent that's been set that's much more relaxed. But almost 60% of what we have is public domain. This is one of the things about the United States that's great, that we, we have a public domain. The problem is is that it's not growing. It's been cut off because of restrictive legislation and copyright intention and extension, and we've got to deal with that. But there's a lot of old stuff we can use.
1: And I, I really appreciate the fact that I mean most people take the stance of oh well there's nothing new going into copyright why should we even start an archive and do interesting stuff and the reality is the majority of history is of course in the public domain and thank you for bringing it to us thank you all. thank you.
0: This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.